This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we are speaking with one of my partners, Sushil Kurpalani, who is head of our restructuring litigation practice based in our New York office. Sushil, so much for joining us here today. Yeah, you're welcome. Great to be here, John. Nice to see you. And of course, we're going to be talking about restructuring litigation, something that's most people don't come across every day, and it's a relatively, uh, I would say not just relatively, it's a very specialized area of, of the business litigation world. And Sushil has been doing restructuring litigation his whole career. And maybe a good place to start is just to ask Sushil, I mean, what is restructuring litigation? What should we be thinking about when we use or hear of that term? Um, I'd say, John, that restructuring litigation is... Uh, any dispute that arises when a company is experiencing financial distress or is trying to manage its liabilities or do some kind of a transaction uh, that gets challenged by creditors usually um, who feel like the transaction has disadvantaged them um, and benefited someone else. Is this litigation uh, that takes place only in bankruptcy court or it can be outside of bankruptcy court as well? No, not necessarily. Obviously, if the company is not bankrupt, hasn't filed for Chapter 11, then these types of cases can happen in state court, can happen in federal court. Really, all the ordinary rules of commercial litigation would apply. There's no special box you could check to get into federal court just because it's related to restructuring. Unless the company is in Chapter 11, then there actually is a special box you can check to get into uh, federal court. But oftentimes, cases start in state court and then if the company that's at the center of the storm winds up filing for Chapter 11, then the litigants can remove the case to federal court and usually to the bankruptcy court itself. I mean, if we were to talk in terms of what are the big buckets or paradigms uh, or types of restructuring litigation, uh, but what are some of the obvious categories that come to mind? First, in my mind, it would be fraudulent transfer litigation. A uh, company decides to transfer assets. Creditors feel that it wasn't done for fair value or it was done to an affiliate of the company or the shareholder or equity sponsor of the company and feel that this has disadvantaged them, it was unfair, um, and they want to try to bring those assets back. So fraudulent transfers or fraudulent conveyances. And in the modern parlance, it's called voidable transfers. Um, but that's really the kind of a general umbrella. Uh, beyond that, you have really these kinds of contract fights which are not just two-party disputes. So it's a little different than commercial litigation where contract disputes tend to be between two parties. Because there's so many stakeholders um, in corporate finance, when one particular contract is breached, a lot of other people can come out of the woodwork and say, hey, that affects my rights too, and we want to join in that, or we think that some conduct here was tortious, uh, or there was some sort of conspiracy, uh, and we want to join in this litigation as well. But so you'd have contract disputes. Sometimes people bring these tortious interference type of claims as well. Uh, like I said, voidable transfers or fraudulent transfers. Uh, there's also disputes about valuation. 
Uh, you know, so in Delaware Chancery Court, there's been you know dissenting shareholder rights and appraisal rights for decades. Um, well, in bankruptcy court, or even not in bankruptcy court, but in a court before there's a bankruptcy, often valuation is at the center of a fight as well. A company may be trying to take advantage of a provision that allows them to do certain transactions that are below a certain threshold of value. Well, you know, creditors might disagree that that value is fairly stated. Uh, and even when a company is in Chapter 11, there is fights over the spoils. How much is it worth? Who's entitled to it? Is the valuation being artificially depressed to benefit uh, creditors who are at the top of the totem pole, if you will? Those kinds of fights are really the buckets, I would say, of restructuring litigation. I know many of the cases that you're involved in and the restructuring team that you head is involved in involve different parties at different places in the capital structure, uh, whether it's the equity or senior debt or less senior debt or uh, you know some, uh, different types of securities or interests, what makes that kind of litigation different than you would say, you know, ordinary business litigation? It, it seems very complicated that you have whole groups of people who are in different postures with different takes on a situation or a transaction. Yeah, I often tell clients that you don't want to go into a restructuring litigation alone. So you try to figure out where you might have allies on certain issues. And I think oftentimes you'll find different pockets or different factions within a company's corporate structure are aligned on certain things. Uh, you might find the company and the senior lenders are aligned in protecting a certain transaction that also benefits shareholders, ironically. And you might find that the unsecured bondholders, for example, feel like they're left out in the snow. And so I think finding a, a building allegiances, finding allies, that makes it interesting. It makes it different. Uh, I don't think people generally succeed when they walk into a restructuring litigation by themselves and think they're going to upset the entire dynamic of a, of a company's reorganization effort. Um, I also think it's interesting because the players tend to be repeat players. Uh, so unlike general commercial litigation, you, you find the same professionals uh, financial advisors, lawyers, um, as well as private equity firms, uh, institutional investors uh, who appear in different transactions and they all know what the other one did in a prior deal. Uh, and that comes around and people try to use that to their, to their advantage in a particular case. Um, there's also the board of directors. Uh, and we do sometimes represent boards, sometimes independent or special committees of the board, raises a lot of interesting privilege issues, which uh, are hard to navigate. And a lot of folks don't really understand it well enough. Um, and that could be dangerous uh, if you don't. Uh, but I think in the end, what makes it unique is that these different factions will all be trying to accomplish a different goal. It could be to um, crystallize the value of a company at a given moment in time. It could be exactly the opposite, that this is not the time to crystallize. You could think of the pandemic, John. You know How many companies felt that this is not the right time to try to value our business, right? That happens during any trough cycle. But the senior most creditors would usually prefer to value it then because they will be capturing all of the potential future equity value. And on the uptick, they will be making a lot more than just getting their debt back. When you talk about uh, the fact that you're dealing a lot with uh, repeat players, you've seen the same professionals, you maybe have slightly different interests and positions in different matters. 
that must make the dynamics from a professional standpoint very different. Sometimes you talk about in the big city, in your average commercial case, you may see a lawyer who you're never going to see again on the other side and how that might affect behavior when people are strangers and 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 in the future will be strangers and not have to deal with each other. It sounds to me like in your world, you're dealing with the same players. So your reputation, your word, your behavior is going to stay with you. Am I right about that? You're definitely right about that, John. And I think actually what attracted me to this space was the feeling that I want to be in a practice area that is more collegial. That's kind of ironic. Now, that would probably surprise a lot of our listeners think <laughs> that you in the restructuring world, bankruptcy world, where there's a lot of bad news, a lot of bad things have happened, and there's a lot at stake, and you would think this is a, like a divorce in some way, but you're saying professionally it's more collegial. I think it is. I think I think crisis creates strange bedfellows. I think uh, we've all been through miserable experiences, uh, and I think there's some bonding that occurs uh, when that happens. And you know, I could be speaking with, you know, the lawyer for a company, uh, and they know they've been in my situation in a different case, and perhaps I was on the other side in a different position of power or strength, and I need a favor this time. And uh, and there really is maybe 200 lawyers in the country that you kind of need to know if you're going to be in this space. And if you're within that circle, uh, there's very little that you can't try to help a client get through. I think a lot of it is based on relationships and trust and I think the same is true with judges. Judges judges tend to believe uh, the lawyers that come in uh, time and again, and they've seen how they've accomplished things in prior cases. I think bankruptcy judges are different than um, commercial litigation judges in the sense that they are more oriented towards hoping for a solution. Uh, it's not they're you know a good judge is going to call balls and strikes and not lean one way or the other, but they certainly are oriented towards hoping there will be some kumbaya moment where everyone comes together and says we have a deal. And then I think for a bankruptcy judge, they feel like they have you know provided some good public service as opposed to if they watch a company liquidate. Uh, and be broken apart completely, they feel like this process has been a bit of a failure. Do you find, uh, I mean, I know in your practice area, there must be high emotion moments from time to time. And maybe as you get older, there are a few of those. I tell people that, you know, it's amazing to me how all the people I litigated against before I was 40 years old were just assholes. <laughs> but now they're your best friends. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the older I've gotten, it just seems I encounter fewer assholes out there. I know it's, it's yeah. like it's like Mark Twain who's who said that he was amazed how much his father learned between the time he was 15 years old and 20 years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember you 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 probably read the book uh, Caesar's Palace Coup about uh, the restructuring of of uh, the Caesar's Palace. Or I can't remember what the name of the entity was and the the situations that uh, Apollo created. And I think the opening line of that book, it's uh, it's a it's a, a quote from a, a a guy you and I both know, Ken at Oak Tree, who left some years ago. Yes. And the opening line is Ken is saying to somebody at Apollo, the opening line is, 
not a fucking penny more not a penny more <laughs> i mean you must you must have been in conference rooms where there's conversations like that oh for sure i've i've been in conference room where people have thrown shoes thrown bagels um <laughs> i've seen somebody uh strangle someone literally when the judge wasn't in the courtroom um but and actually they were above 40 when it happened but <laughs> i can i can proudly say i've never done that and and frankly i think i think you know what it's an interesting anecdote actually so uh, a senior partner I used to work for uh, when I was at Millbank uh, stood outside of my um, doorway when I was a junior associate and was watching me be berated by a senior partner at Cleary Gottlieb, just like being yelled at just incessantly. And I looked up at my the, the senior partner, I was a fourth year, I think, at the time with my hands in my air, like, can you help me out here? And uh, and he just smiled. And then when the call ended and I felt like I just finished that Memorex, you know, commercial where your hair was being blown back from all the, the sound coming out of the speakerphone. I looked at him and I'm like, why didn't you say anything? And he's like, you're doing fine. He said, By the way, how come you don't shout back? And I said, look at me. I'm not like six foot two like you. I can't just, I don't have that persona. And he said, I disagree. I've had these, you know, really short guys come in and just, you know, blow things up. It's just their personality. But I do think that uh, restructuring has a lot of personalities. I think, you know, different sectors of the litigation bar tend to have that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you, you develop your own voice. You deliver what you can for the client. Uh, and I think different I think different personalities are hired specifically for different types of matters. I think, you know, you think of a situation and you say, oh, I know who I need for this. Right. And I think that's what tends you to hear, happen. You hear the term bomb thrower, that sometimes yeah. we need somebody who's going to come in and throw bombs and just shake things up. Sometimes that's what you need. Sometimes you need somebody who's going to, you know, give your give you the best possible shot because you're not a very sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I probably fall more into that second category. <laughs> I, I know that uh, a lot of times uh, investors, credit investors, uh, will come to you with a situation. Uh, they've invested, uh, you know, after there's been an event, uh, after there's been a filing, uh, they think they see an opportunity, they buy up uh, at what they think is a good price, some debt securities, and then they come and consult with you, like, how might this play out? Do you read this instrument the way we, we read it? What are our options here? Yeah, I think that's a lot of what restructuring litigation is about. A lot of it is counseling, advising. Um, you know, even though we don't give, quote, investment advice, so much of restructuring uh, is dependent on trying to predict litigation outcomes, that it's it's going to happen that as a, as a restructuring lawyer, you're going to be asked, well, how do you think this plays out? Um, what do you think our chances are? You know, help us assess the probabilities so that we can better understand the value of our investment. Where should we settle? Um, where where should we be striving for? Should we buy more of the same securities um, or not based on your assessment of it? Uh, that's That's a lot of what bankruptcy lawyers do for sure. You mentioned Chapter 11. I mean, what should uh, lawyers who don't practice in the bankruptcy area and non-lawyers know about Chapter 11. I mean, what is it basically? And what are in broad parameters? What do people need to know? Yeah, in broad parameters, I think the way best way to think about it, and we just look at any bankruptcy case and it says in Ray, uh, take Lehman Brothers, in Ray Lehman Brothers, in Ray Enron. Uh, what is it? What is it referring to? It's referring to in the matter of all of the property of this entity, it's an umbrella litigation 
known as creating an estate. And everything that could conceivably touch this estate must be litigated here, unless the bankruptcy judge who's overseeing it says it's okay to litigate it somewhere else, and then usually bring it back here in order to be implemented. So I think the first thing to think about if you're not a bankruptcy lawyer is make sure that what you're doing is permitted if you're not doing it in the bankruptcy court, because there is an automatic stay of all litigation, even if you may not be suing the entity that's in bankruptcy, you may be somehow impairing that entity's value, that entity's assets, that property somewhere, and that would be automatically stayed, and you can get yourself into a lot of trouble if you continue doing something even outside of the bankruptcy system that actually violates what the court is trying to accomplish in the bankruptcy system. And that's probably one of the biggest things you have to know. Another thing you have to know is... And that's that's enforceable by contempt, just to be that's clear. That's enforceable, right. By sanctions, by contempt. The judge is saying, look, all the assets of this entity, the estate, as you said, is, is we're going to deal with it here in my courtroom. And if you're trying to do something that could affect the assets somewhere else, you're violating a court order. Yeah, even even as much as just writing a letter, John. If you if if a company goes bankrupt and your client says, you know, I want to write a letter terminating my my contract with that party. I don't want to do business with a bankrupt, and I've got the contract right right here. It says if I go bankrupt, you can terminate. I'm going to exercise that. You can't exercise that, even though every contract says it. It's unenforceable as a matter of federal law, and yeah, you could get sanctioned for having done that. Um, the other thing to think about, though. You may not realize if, if, let's say you're representing a client, your client may not realize that it's got a claim against the bankrupt company because, for example, it hasn't matured yet or it's contingent on some future event or it's unliquidated. You're not sure how much it is. Well, under the bankruptcy laws, that's still a claim. A claim is a right to payment regardless of its contingency, regardless of its maturity, regardless of whether it's due. And when a company files for Chapter 11, all of its all of its liabilities are crystallized on that filing date, which is called a petition date. And that's something that you just don't ordinarily expect to happen. So when there is a deadline to file claims, you got to make sure you show up, file something with the court. It's a pretty simple process. But if you don't, your rights or your client's rights are going to be forever extinguished. Right. And then within the umbrella of the bankruptcy case, the in ray uh, of, of a company, there are a multitude of discrete litigations, and they can be called an adversary proceeding or a contested matter, but they're just like miniature or full-scale litigations that are underneath this umbrella Chapter 11 case. So it's like a case within a case. And oftentimes what happens in the umbrella case has a great impact on what could be happening, or at least the timing or exigency of your particular case. I mean, there are bankruptcy cases that require the resolution of multi-billion dollar disputes in a matter of months, including discovery, experts, trial, witnesses. That would be unheard of in general commercial litigation, but it's quite commonplace in Chapter 11. How is that done? I mean, to me, that just uh, sounds fantastic that you, that you can accelerate and telescope everything to a resolution of multi-billion dollar claims that would take years and years in the commercial court, but yet you do it in bankruptcy court all the time. It, it happens all the time. And like I said before, bankruptcy judges generally don't 
uh, think of their public service as just deciding discrete disputes. They think, I think appropriately, of their service as resolving the entire company's problems. And what they have, tools that they have available to them in the bankruptcy code, is the ability to accelerate the resolution of disputes. They can, they of course, can set their own docket, uh, routinely have expedited cases or rocket dockets in bankruptcy, uh, and they can affect the rights of multiple people who are not even yet there, but they'll be brought in. They can be sucked in to the bankruptcy. And I think the reason for that is you can't let the patient die on the operating table. I think that's what the bankruptcy judge is thinking about the most. We've got to save this company because saving this company is going to save jobs. And saving this company is going to prevent secondary failures of businesses because there can be a ripple effect when when a company goes down oftentimes there's a particular industry that gets affected by a business cycle and after the bankruptcies of that industry the secondary market of that industry or the secondary the second tier of that industry gets affected as well just think of like a simple example of the automobile world and then auto parts right you know thereafter uh, or servicing arms for for automobiles afterwards so I, I think that the stakes are too high for what we would call normal, ordinary due process to always apply. I think that judges try really hard to afford due process, but you have to be on your A game and you have to be able to move quickly um, because otherwise it will pass you by. Does that, um, I mean, as you describe it, the, the judge has a uh, has his eye on preserving jobs, uh, on collateral consequences, keeping the patient alive. Make that sometimes result in a situation where it's not really a level playing field because the judge has has other goals in mind. And if you know if some creditor's claim or contract party's claim needs to be compromised in a certain way, and with a result that you would never see if the company wasn't in bankruptcy, so be it. I mean, look, there's a practical reality, John, to representing a stakeholder who is standing in the way between a company's survival um, or not. And I think when you're representing parties like that, you have to not only be on your A game, but you need to raise the stakes yourself. You have to let the judge know that this decision, it may not be within the power of the bankruptcy court's um, jurisdiction or their final adjudicative power. And there have been cases that have gone way up to the Supreme Court which have made clear there's there's a lot that a bankruptcy judge can do, but they can't necessarily do everything without your consent. And so I would say, is it a playing is it a level playing field? A lot depends on when your litigation comes in front of a bankruptcy judge. I think if you're standing in the way of a plan being confirmed and not, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on you. Um, to get everything perfect. And sometimes you do feel that the company in bankruptcy is given more of the benefit of the doubt uh, than, than it should be. Uh, but you're, you're constantly focusing on your appellate rights. You're constantly watching what the standard re review could be. You're trying to ensure that you're making every argument you can. And I would say that, you know, which is why some people in this space, um, you know, tend to adopt a different voice depending on the situation. 
it's often not binary. Uh, clients sometimes believe their options are binary, but as we both know, life isn't binary, and you know the choices and decisions we make are not binary, and people are not all bad or all good. So the same is true for an outcome. An outcome is not all bad or all good. I think it's a question of what can you do? Are there levers you can pull? Things that people haven't thought of. Ways to create value for yourself. Um, a simple example. You, know, you might be trying to stop a plan from going effective because you feel you're, you're not being given your fair value. Well, you can design a security that if you're right and your adversary is wrong, you'll pick up that value if it winds up materializing into the future. It could be as simple as a warrant. It could be as complicated as something's known as a contingent value instrument, which is being done in the municipal space more and more. Um, and so there's all sorts of different types of vehicles. Also, the advent of litigation trusts. Take that big gating problem away from the bankruptcy judge who's trying to make a decision. Do I have to keep this patient alive? or should I just allow this litigation to go forward even if the patient will die? So there's a clever way around that. Let's hive off things that are really not essential to the employees, really not essential to the go-forward business, and have a lot more to do with the pre-existing company's capital structure. Let's try to preserve as many issues we can. And clever lawyers came up with the idea. Why don't we dump all those issues into a litigation trust, let the company emerge on the one hand, and let the litigators deal with the trust over the next several years and try to maximize value through litigation, everyone will get their fair day in courts. And I think bankruptcy judges are very receptive to that. So thinking outside the box, trying to come up with creative solutions that are not just binary, it's either I win or I lose. Bankruptcy is not like that. It's much more about what can we come up with that hasn't been done before. We've seen some uh, examples in recent years of companies trying to deal with major uh, tort or uh, liability problems, whether it's uh, Purdue and opioids, the Boy Scouts, uh, the 3M airplugs situation, which we're involved in, Johnson and Johnson and Tal, trying to use bankruptcy as a vehicle to put these these exposures behind them. And I, we've heard of something called the Texas two-step that has been, uh, sometimes been employed to try to accomplish this. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you see as the future of that that mechanism for dealing with very large liabilities? Sure. Uh, yeah, so look, I think that there is a you know a, a large debate looming in the bar um, as well as in in Washington about what is the right way to deal with large mass tort liabilities. You know, we have the the kind of the plaintiff's bar class action system. We all know it has some advantages. We also know it has some disadvantages. Uh, length of time, efficiency, the overall recoveries that actually go to people who are injured. Is it really the best system? Some folks, you know, coming from my neck of the woods, would say, you know, restructuring and bankruptcy and Chapter 11 is just a better collective system. You can get there more quickly with fewer costs. You could try to achieve contributions from third parties who are not in bankruptcy. Take Purdue and the Sackler family contributing $6 billion into the Purdue bankruptcy in order to get victims um, of the opioid crisis as much value as possible with the least transaction costs or the least litigation costs. So I think I do think that the use of Chapter 11 to solve mass torts comes from a good place. I think it comes from the goal of trying to resolve major problems in the most efficient 
and value-maximizing way. Um, however, it has potential for abuse as well. People are entitled to their, quote, day in court. Well, bankruptcy doesn't always give you your day in court. Uh, and so, like I said earlier, there's a lot of pressure to come up with compromises that work. These cases tend to use structures that create trusts. It's not a litigation trust per se. It's more of a channeling injunction and trust. So it's like a payout trust. So a trust is created. Value will be contributed into that trust by the company and sometimes by jointly liable parties who are not in bankruptcy um, to put all of that money to work to pay the victims or potential victims whose claims, as I said earlier, may not even yet have materialized, and yet they are future claimants. And the architecture around that is still developing, but has gotten quite sophisticated. And there are ways to appoint independent third parties to come in, review claims as they come in, give people an option to just settle. I think the Boy Scouts case allowed people who, who just wanted to submit their claim but really didn't want to go into any details as to what happened to just take a small check and move on with life. Um, and by the same token, those who do feel they want to put evidence in and they want to have opportunity for a greater payout, those types of systems have all been worked out through Chapter 11 plans. The Texas two-step and some of the more controversial um, efforts uh, recently, like the LTL or Johnson & Johnson um, subsidiary, uh, to try to contain its talcum exposures, uh, you know, judges have come down hard on some companies. I think it just happened also in the um, 3M case. Can you explain to us what the uh, Texas two-step is? What does that refer to? Yeah, it, it refers to creating um, a new company that splits the old company's liability, old company into two. One that's going to take on the legacy liabilities along with a certain discrete amount of assets, and the other company should be left alone. It's called a divisional merger, where you basically split the company into two companies. And then thereafter, what the Chapter 11 lawyers are doing is they're taking that company that had all the legacy liability, that now has all the legacy liabilities, and they want to put it in Chapter 11 to crystallize all of those liabilities, as we talked about before, bring everything into the moment, and then resolve them uh, for, for all time so that the larger organization that used to house all of these problems and all of these assets can itself move on, even though it's not filing for Chapter 11. And judges recently have uh, you know, turned sour on some of these efforts and even dismissed those cases as bad faith filings, which is you know something that's all been appealed now. It's going up to the Third Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, uh, and we'll see how that plays out in the future. But I don't think it's going to go away. I think you know maybe the the corporate lawyers will have to work on building a better mousetrap. But there's certainly some element of using Chapter Eleven as a transactional tool not just to keep jobs in the moment, not just to reorganize and maximize value of a company that's insolvent. Being insolvent is not even technically required under the bankruptcy code, although judges have been looking at what is the real financial distress on this company as an element of the good faith for having come into that courtroom to begin with. Because if the company is doing just fine, why are you using Chapter 11 anyway? So I think it, it comes out uh, in that in that way. And I do think, though, that um, using Chapter 11 as a transactional tool is frankly not new. It's just taking on different lives 
um, as as people are thinking of more creative ways to use it. But going back to the big the big picture, the question I think is: Is bankruptcy a better collective mechanism in order to try to resolve? Uh, unliquidated future liabilities, or is the class action system a better system? I think there's just different schools of thoughts on that. I mean, one thing that uh, it's implicit in some of the things you've said, but we haven't directly discussed it, is that time is money uh, when a company is in uh, a bankruptcy. There's enormous pressure to reach some resolution because it's super expensive to be in bankruptcy. You have all these professionals and consultants and folks involved in the process who are being paid out of out of the estate. Yeah, that's right. So what, what another thing that a lot of non-bankruptcy lawyers may not realize is when a company goes bankrupt, it's not just the company's lawyers and bankers and financial experts, accountants, etc., that are paid by the estate, but it's also oftentimes the secured creditors professionals will have the same you know battery of professionals that all needs to be paid from the company's assets and the unsecured creditors are entitled to a statutory creditors committee whose fees and expenses are also paid by the company and as you said time is money you also have to remember the company is operating under the supervision of a judge so the judge also is going to start to lose patience if progress is not being made there are deadlines in bankruptcy cases for when are you going to file some proposed resolution, which is called a plan of reorganization? When are you going to file a disclosure document explaining to creditors and shareholders what are they going to be entitled to? Um, because if the company is not moving forward with some uh, level of urgency, the bankruptcy judge could just terminate the company's exclusive right to propose those types of resolutions and let creditors start proposing them. And no company, no board of directors wants to lose control of their own business. Where are most of these cases brought these days, the large bankruptcies? I know the venue rules, they're kind of like, I might be completely wrong on this, but my impression is that they're kind of like the patent venue rules and that you have a lot of options in theory where you could bring a case. Well, I think that it, I don't know that the venue rules in bankruptcy were intended to provide a lot of options, but you know there are certainly ways to um, to get into most most venues. Uh, there, there is the basics are you have to file where your principal uh, office is, um, or where you're incorporated. So you know Delaware has for you know, thirty years or more been one of the go-to venues for big corporate chapter 11s. So has the Southern District of New York. A lot of companies are based here in New York. And I would say since the mid-20-teens, uh, the Southern District of Texas, Houston, has become huge. It started with the oil and gas companies, but now you've got retailers. I mean, Neiman Marcus was in the Southern District of Texas. How did that come about? Why, why, why Houston? Um, I think, look... I, it, there are two judges who made it their mission in life, uh, Judge Isger and Judge uh, David R. Jones, to, to try to make the Houston Bankruptcy Court uh, best in class when it comes to technology, accessibility, speed, going back to time is money, uh, and, and transparency, predictability. Uh, why do particular companies remember the venue can be selected 
by the company that's filing for Chapter 11. So why would a company want to go to Delaware? Well, because the law is very developed in Delaware. and People can predict the results. Predictability is good for business. Um, lack of predictability is bad or unpredictability is bad. Um, so the same is true with the Southern District of Texas. I think the, these two judges and judges who just recently retired, you know, they used to be law partners and they both decided to take the bench. Uh, and I think that people understood uh, companies filing for Chapter 11 understood kind of what the rules of the game were there. They knew what they would be getting themselves into. They knew how hard those judges worked. Those judges also made their courtroom extremely accessible, even pre-COVID. Um, the ability to dial in, video in, um, follow what's going on in the proceeding from anywhere in the world, even if you weren't in Houston at the time. And I think other courts have you know, followed suit uh, and try to make it easily accessible as well for, for their courtrooms. But I think that these three courts, Delaware, the Southern District of New York, which is Manhattan, um, and Houston, or the Southern District of Texas, are the three biggest venues. So, Sheila, any, uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, any advice you'd give to a, a young lawyer who thinks they're, they may be interested in restructuring, they'd like to try it, they're wondering, is this for me? I mean, you must have had those thoughts at one point earlier in your career. Any any tips that you might give someone who's thinking about this as a practice area? Yeah, I would I would tell young lawyers that if they really want to try cases, they really want to try cases, they ought to think about bankruptcy because we go to court an awful lot. Um, cases move very quickly. Uh, it's all federal court. Uh, so there's a lot there's a lot to love about it. Uh, and if you want to learn about it, I think the best way to do that is to work on some of these cases. The issues tend to be recurring, but you know, as with anything, um, there's so much to learn. Uh, what you might not realize if you are studying and you're not sure if you want to do bankruptcy or not, is that it is a very jurisprudence-driven practice. You'd think everything's in the bankruptcy code, sort of like tax. It's frankly the opposite. So much of it is driven by case law, um, and the case law evolves just like in the common law. And uh, I think also having some trial chops or having the ability to put on witnesses can set you, can set you apart um, from a typical bankruptcy lawyer. A lot of bankruptcy lawyers act more as sort of the go-between uh, of a corporate practice and the litigation practice. And so there are some practices out there like ours um, where you have to do everything. Uh, soup to nuts. And I think that for young lawyers, that can be quite exciting. Uh, so, uh, you know, for me, I I like being involved in household name things. I think that that was how I got involved in, in Chapter 11s to begin with. Um, I like people. Uh, I like meeting people. Uh, and bankruptcy affects people's lives. And it could be their life savings that they're calling you to help with or you're trying to protect. It could be, you know, their reputation that they're trying to protect as a an equity sponsor or a CEO or chairman of the board. Um, or it could be someone just trying to get the best possible recovery on their investment and needs someone who really can navigate their way through the system. So I think there's a lot a lot here for, for a lot of young practitioners that they would like. So, Shil, thank you so much. This has been super interesting. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. It's great to see you, John, as always. This is John Quinn. We've been talking to my partner, Sushil Krupalani, about restructuring litigation. This has been Law Disrupted. Disrupted.